From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to the fifth season premiere of Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. While no one likes the long wait for fall, the Orange and Blue are fortunate to be getting back to business a little sooner than the rest of the college football world. Year two under Dan Mullen will begin in week zero under the lights at Camping World Stadium in Orlando with the eyes of the nation squarely focused on the renewing of a rivalry that once stood tall in the South. On today's show, We'll take a macro look at the Gators entering the season and their intermittent history against Miami with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Then, redshirt sophomore cornerback Marco Wilson stops by to talk about his difficult recovery from a torn ACL, his deep family roots with both the Gators and Canes, and the expectations of the young but extraordinarily talented secondary. But first, while casual fans around the country will be happy to have any game to watch a week ahead of schedule, We began our season preview with Scott and Chris by establishing the very high stakes for Florida. For Florida fans, I mean, this is year two under Dan Mullen, and we all know what happened in year one. It was a program that needed a jolt, and Dan Mullen uh, proved to be the fix that turned the Gators from four and seven to ten and three, and it was a good year. Uh, they finished seventh in the national polls, and they're going to open eighth in the national polls, which is the highest since 2013. So uh, what Dan Mullen and the, the Gators want to do is go out and kind of maintain the momentum that they built at the end of last season, winning those last four games, uh, beating Florida State and Michigan decisively uh, in their final two games, snapping that what five-year losing streak against the Seminoles, beating Michigan for the first time in program history. And I think most importantly of all what we just mentioned and why that happened, I think the offense uh, was humming along at over 500 yards a game in those final four wins. And Felipe Franks uh, was a huge reason for that at quarterback, having his best stretch of his career over that course. And so if you're a Florida fan, you're wanting to see uh, the Gators pick up right where they left off, kind of like we have here on Gator Tells. And uh, they're going to try to do that in Orlando, a neutral site game, ESPN, national television. I mean, if you like big stages, big games, uh, this is as good of a season kickoff that Florida has had in a while. They did this a couple of years ago with Michigan, but not quite the spotlight of this game, considering really it's the only big game going uh, the whole weekend. Mm-hmm. And everybody's going to be watching it. Yeah, it's it's the only game that day. It's Scott said, with the exception of that game later that night or whatever. It, it may involve two uh, two state teams, whatever six hours apart or whatever. But we're talking about two national brands in in the Gators and the U, two fan bases that uh, like to gig each other. Miami certainly has had the upper hand of that. They've actually won seven of the last eight meetings dating to 1986. Um, obviously, there's a lot of history there that predates, you know, not just players on both rosters right now coaches on both rosters right now uh, uh dan mullen was a, a junior in uh junior in high school playing quarterback in new hampshire when um florida miami uh last played uh in their annual rivalry game in 1987 so while it may be a cross-state rivalry it certainly has national appeal 
you know, you have ESPN there, you have game day, college game day there, you have SEC uh, Nation coming there, and there'll be a ton of uh, national um, newspaper and, and website and media people there for this game. Uh, quite a, a spectacle, I would think, in Orlando at Camping World Stadium, and uh, obviously everyone's looking forward to it. And we'll talk more about that serious history here in a few minutes, but I want to talk about specifically Felipe Franks. You mentioned him a moment ago, Scott, and I think that's where so many eyes are going to be focused on this weekend because, again, if you look at his trajectory last year, midway even to almost later, there were a lot of people who thought that you know his job was basically done at the end of the year and that it would be Emory Jones elevating to that position. But then he finished really, really strong. He had the great game against FSU, again against Michigan. He wins the offensive MVP award in the bowl game. And suddenly, the whole conversation around him changes. So based on what what you guys have seen and from what you've heard, what are your expectations for how he'll perform entering this season? Well, you know, preseason is a time of year when sometimes you learn a lot and sometimes you don't. And this is one, compared to recent years around the Gators, there hasn't been a lot of I guess, big position battles, certainly not at quarterback because, as we've talked about, Felipe Franks kind of took that job at the end of last season. But I did think Dan Mullen probably made his most revealing statement of the whole preseason at his Monday press conference this week. It was about Felipe, and he said he was asked how much was he going to uh, need to improve from this season to last season if he's going to have to duplicate that. Mullen said, look, He's already improved more in the offseason than you guys saw at all last season. So, Hmm. you know, just from what I've seen in camp, I mean, Felipe, you know, it's hard to measure this in numbers and wins and losses uh, because there's no games. But, I mean, he looks the the leader of this team. He looks confident. He's had his moments where, you know, maybe a little bit of that frustration creeps back in. But I think what Mullen was alluding to is that, he doesn't sweat the small stuff so much as he used to. And if you watched any of his press conferences or heard him talk, I mean, he's uh, so much more comfortable in front of the media. He doesn't get as defensive. And I think a lot of it goes to maturity. I think he's matured off the field as he uh, has matured on the field. And certainly uh, that showed up in the numbers last year. So when you ask uh, about Felipe, I, I see him being fully able to, you know, continue building momentum on what he did last season. I don't know if the offense will hum along like it was to those numbers, but I I think Felipe uh, is certainly capable of uh, continuing to put up good numbers. It's going to be how much help he gets with the uh, offensive line. Look at his last four games, Adam. I mean, the four-game winning streak to end the season, South Carolina, Idaho, Florida State, Michigan, he was 71% against South Carolina, 70% against Idaho 61 and a half against Florida State and 56 against uh, Michigan in that MVP game that you said he had eight touchdowns and didn't turn the ball over. Hmm. Uh, and that was all after the uh, horrendous game against Missouri where everyone thought he could possibly be losing his job to Kyle Trask and then Kyle Trask had the unfortunate injury in practice. But just what's Scott's point about maturity? Uh, there's a level, obviously, for, for Felipe Franks for the last two seasons, um, for the previous two seasons, excuse me, where, where he clearly had some thin skin. And it manifested itself a couple times with, you know, with the shushing of the home crowd and everything. People didn't like that. Mm-hmm. I agree with what Scott said about it. he is a different guy. He seems more he seems more comfortable up there and in that spotlight as 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 the quarterback at Florida. And since Dan Mullen got here, he talked about how it's a you know that's a difficult position to be in to be the quarterback at Florida. And there, you know, there's some responsibilities that come with that. Um, and, and and they don't 
stop with throwing touchdowns. Mm. Uh, he's, he's more respected, I think, in his team. He's one of the leaders on this team. I think he's uh, one of the standard setters when it came to working out in the weight room. He's much bigger. Didn't you think so? I'm yeah, just looking at him. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's really, I mean, he's a big guy to begin with, but he, he's, he's gotten a lot stronger also and obviously poised to have a big year. And yet nobody's really talking about him in the bigger picture of, uh, you know, in terms of the better quarterbacks in the Southeastern Conference. And that's probably fair. Let's see what he's going to do now with expectations. And that's not just expectations on him. That's very high expectations for this program. Um, debuting at number eight, the last time Florida debuted in the top 10, uh, didn't turn out very well, did it, Scott? No. I think the season ended four and eight in 2013. So, um, I don't think there's a whole lot in common between this team and, and that team. But another thing that Felipe Franks was asked about was what's the difference between this year and last year? I, Mullins, the Gators know each other. I always thought one of the best things that the coach did last year was the, the way he reacted after losses. You know, he, he had some real talk with these guys about uh, competing and toughness and, you know, normal things coaches would say, but for some reason resonated better with the players. And they responded. And the one time maybe they didn't was after losing to Georgia. They lost to Missouri. And Mullen came out and said, that game carried over into this game. And we lost two games because of it. And then after that, things got a lot better. And uh, one of the best things I think this team has going for it, the exception of C.J. McWilliams, uh, the pretty injury-free team. Um, and so uh, they're going in to the season healthy and they can meet those expectations uh, head on and see what happens from there. In, in terms of wrinkles in the offense, I think that's another thing fans are looking forward to seeing now that Mullins have more time to work with these guys and implement more creative elements. What do we expect that to look like, whether it's Emory Jones and some Tebow style packages? Kadarius Tony, they've talked about him basically working in a, almost a Percy Harvin-like role. What do you guys think we're going to see in terms of those wrinkles, especially early on? Because sometimes you save those for you know your bigger games, but you got a big game in week one this year. I mean, I think you, let's just talk about Kadarius Tony. I mean, everybody knows that he's their most dynamic guy with the ball in his hands. Dan Mullins has said they need to get him the ball more. Uh, they'll try to continue to find ways to do that, I think. Uh, Emory Jones, uh, I think Emory's handled his situation as well as anyone can expect it. I mean, out of practice earlier this week, and a, a former Gators quarterback named Tim Tebow dropped by. He spent a lot of his time just out there on the field talking to Emory Jones as uh, Felipe Franks ran the first team offense. I, I do think Emory will have some spots here, but I, I think it's clear this is, you know, Felipe Franks' team. It's his offense. And, and don't forget, Felipe, uh, you know, he can run. I, a lot of people say, well, they maybe need to have Jones come in to give different uh, looks to the defense, and that's certainly possible. But, you know, when you think of a guy like Tim Tebow, how he used to run, Felipe Franks isn't quite that physical, but he's certainly physical and certainly big enough. Like Chris mentioned earlier, he is not a small guy. So I think you really saw last year, and Dan Mullins addressed this. I mean, I think he, he took baby steps with the offense. He didn't overload Felipe or any anything else or anyone else uh, with what they were trying to do. So I think just natural in year two, maybe he does dive a little deeper into that playbook because he has more confidence and the players have more knowledge of his system. Uh, so I don't know how that's going to come to fruition on the field, but I do expect maybe a Dan Mullen to use a little more creativity, but we also saw a lot of creativity last year. I was just about to I say, think, I mean, what, how much more do you want to see? You always seem like <laughs> trick play uh, in yeah. his back pocket at a key time 
during some games. It's certainly, uh, whether you're talking about the double pass in Mississippi State, the, the fake punt, um, Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. And then I, earlier this week, I was watching the replay of the Michigan State, the Michigan, uh, bowl game. I kind of forgot that late in the game, huge play, they called, uh, or second half rather, they called a timeout on a fourth and inches. Ended up running Kadarius Tony on that, uh, jet sweep yeah. reverse. Great. Michigan, number one defense in the country, Michigan. They did not see that thing coming. I guess it went for 35 yards or something like that and set up what ended up being um, a touchdown to, in essence, put the game away. Uh, but I don't know that it's going to be any different. I just think maybe he'll come up with some with some cooler looks. And I, one of the best ones I thought last year was the the back pass from Lucas Kroll. I thought that was to, play to, to Felipe if I had Franks. Take yeah. a play of the year. That, that was against be, LSU, right? That was, yeah, yeah, that was yeah. the play of the year. To yeah, me. so he he's got plenty of those that we haven't seen yet, and. Um, I think I think that kind of thing is just a root. It's going to be a routine um, weekly kind of thing that Dan Mullen's going to have ready um, in his uh, in his buffet uh, uh, play sheet, um, no matter what the game is. I would, and yes, I think we will see one. He'll be holding one out for Miami, especially given the fact that he and Manny Diaz, his one of his former defensive coordinators at Mississippi State, um, are kind of well aware of what each other's uh, strengths are and what they like to do. And that that's the fun stuff, right? That's the stuff fans like talking about. Because it's sexy, it's got some pizzazz to it. Um, something they don't love worrying about is the offensive line, right? It's one of those things you just assume that it's there and it's strong, but most people don't like to get into the the nitty gritty on it. Scott, I know this is something that that you've brought up frequently ever since we did our look ahead to this season back in January. So, looking at where the situation is right now, how do you assess the offensive line and their readiness to help Florida compete at a, at a high level? Yeah, the offensive line, it was a natural question mark for this team because anytime you lose four starters, you've got a lot of people to fill in. They brought in four early enrollee freshmen uh, back in January. And really what I learned about the offensive line during camp is that the guys who established themselves there in spring, uh, you, you know, if you go left to right, you're talking about Stone Forsyth, Brett Heggie, then Nick Buchanan at center. And then Chris Bleich at right guard and right tackle, Gene DeLance. Those guys held strong through camp. And uh, for the most part, I think that's going to be the starting lineup uh, on Saturday against Miami, uh, barring injury. The key there was the building depth, which they've done with some of the new guys, uh, Richard Garage and Ethan White, uh, names like that that we've talked about. Bottom line is, uh, you know, we can dissect the offensive line all we want. Uh, until they get out there and see Miami on Saturday and and get some plays and snaps under the belt, I mean, we just don't know. I think that the tone around camp from you know Dan Mullen and the players, uh, they're they're fully confident in this group. Uh, I think it's a good sign in a way that the five guys who emerged up front in the spring that you know they continued through the fall and were able to hold those spots and I. You know, that, that means they identified the right people there, it sounds like. So, but again, until they get out there, we won't know. But it, it, it's always going to be such a huge part of Felipe's success, of the running game success. Everything is, it, to some degree, is around those guys. And if they're struggling, then that's when the play calling and the quicker tempo and the quicker snaps, you have to make adjustments like that. And if that's needed, the one good thing there is, is, you know, you have a veteran quarterback and veteran skill players, so maybe they're able to execute that stuff at a higher level than a younger team. But I'm sure Dan Mullen would take uh, the offensive line uh, doing this job and maybe not having to rely on some of those other things. 
Well, and, and if they can perform at a high level, I mean, it seems like the Gators have maybe the best skill position collection of skill position players they've had, I mean, arguably since Tebow, maybe 10 years ago. Is, is that a fair way of, uh, of looking at it? I think wide receivers, I mean, my goodness gracious, they got a bunch of guys. And it's funny that you look at the as deep as they are at wide receiver and as, as and as attractive all these guys look and how, how how much talent they have. None of them really had like big years. None of them have like piled on a bunch of like gaudy kind of statistics. So that's why you don't you don't see these guys in any of these uh, like preseason all star kind of things. But he's got a lot of guys to deal with where you're talking about Jefferson, where you're talking about Grimes. I mean, Tyree Cleveland uh, didn't even play uh, the last few weeks of the season last year, correct? Well, yeah, I heard his shoulder and they missed the ball game. That's or... right. And, I mean, Freddie, Freddie Swain, I mean, my goodness gracious, they either, these are really, really good football players. Mm-hmm. And what I what I really thought was impressive, and this, again, I was watching the, the replay of the bowl game, it was really how happy they all are in their own, in their own success. And, like, whether it's Michael P. Ryan scoring a touchdown, you see all these guys really, really happy for each other and, and – you know, Van Van Jefferson didn't score a lot of touchdowns last year. Trayvon Grimes didn't score a lot of touchdowns last year, but they sure were happy when the Gators did score touchdowns and were winning. And uh, that starts with the coach. That starts with the locker room. And uh, this this will be a deep skill position team again with, you know, running back Malik Davis is a guy who a couple years ago we thought was going to be the tailback here for a while. But um, injuries set him back, and LaMichael P. Ryan kind of grabbed that, uh, that position by the – by the throat and is certainly uh should be a really really good player this year but to to your point i mean i guess how many questions did dan mullen answer earlier this week as his press conference about how deep they are at tight ends there was a lot of questions about the tight end a lot of tight ends so so yes to your point if they can find a way to patch those uh the, the holes on the offensive line and i think they probably feel confidently in that and certainly john hevesy gets credit this time last year, all we were talking about was um, how, how much concern the offensive line was. And it was a concern early in the season, and it got a whole lot better as the season went on. I think that's probably uh, the expectation, but I think it's also a, a, a blueprint of the way John Hevesy's teams kind of, or his units rather, um, developed over the course of the season. Hopefully we'll see that again. And we know that special teams should be a strength with Evan McPherson doing the place kicking, Tommy Townsend punting, and some dynamic return guys as well. So I don't know if that's maybe something people are worried about. But what's always a concern, especially when you lose a lot of talent and experience, is on the defense. So I'm curious for you guys, what do you view as the strengths right now of this defense, and, and where are the question marks? Well, I think the strength is talent. I think you have some really good football players. Uh, let's start in the secondary. I think Marco Wilson. Back healthy with C.J. Henderson, uh, you could make an argument as good of a duo at cornerback as there is in the country. Uh, linebacker David Reese is uh, just the kind of leader that you really like to have at middle linebacker. Up front, uh, to me, the the guy who I'm really interested to watch this season is is John Grinyard, the uh, guy they brought in to replace Ja'Kai Polite. You know, a fifth-year senior grad student who played at Louisville for Todd Grantham, missed all of last season. Uh, Louisville decided to restart his career uh, with one more year to go here at Florida. And he's looked really good at Kevin. Just one of those veteran guys, great locker room guy, big, strong guy. Uh, probably is going to be a little different kind of uh, a player than Ja'Kai Polite. Has a, a little more physical side to him that can play to run. But he can also, he's proven in his career that he he's a good pass rusher. And they've got him and uh, Jeremiah Moon out there. Inside, you, you know, you're looking at an experienced tackles with Adam Schuler and Kyrie Campbell. The other end, Javari Zaniga, who 
is perhaps their their highest rated uh, uh, prospect on the defensive line. So I think there's talent there. Question marks. Well, I think it's the depth of the secondary. I mean, that's that's where you know if you look at the roster from the end of last season to this year, there's about three or four players who you kind of expected to at least be in the mix. Maybe not marquee guys, but who are no longer there, like you know Brian Edwards and John Huggins, C.J. McWilliams, as Chris mentions, he's out for the year. So they've lost some uh, some depth back there. So that's it's imperative that. Wilson and Henderson and Trey Dean and the safeties, Jawan Taylor, Brad Stewart, Sean Davis, and Amari Bernie. Uh, those guys are all part of that mix back there. Uh, so they need to stay healthy. And we're, we've learned one thing in camp, you know, maybe the most important thing we've learned in camp, considering your question is they're going to rely on three true freshmen in the secondary. Mostly cornerback in Chester Kimbrough, Kair Elam, and Jaden Hill. Uh, all three of those guys, because of uh, some roster attrition, have gotten a lot of work uh, in camp. And Dan Mullen has said openly, and Todd Grantham as well, that yes, those three true freshmen are going to play. So it's going to be young uh, in some spots, especially behind the starters. But again, I think the key there is, is from what I've seen, they're, they're talented. And if they recruited well, those guys should be able to step on the field and, you know, help alleviate some of those concerns about death. Chris, you touched on a little bit earlier, but getting back to the, the history of this rivalry, which is kind of an odd one. And for, you know, for people my age, I've only seen Florida Miami play a handful of times. And the only Gator victory I can remember was back in that 2008 season. But, but as you noted, for, the, for a lot of different reasons, this rivalry has been intermittent and now is, is going to pick up again in a, a few years. Yeah, the, the two schools announced um, this, this rivalry that's only been played as of Saturday night will have been played just seven times since 1988. Um, got a home and home coming up 2024 and 2025. 2020, first year 2024 will be in Gainesville season opener and then a year later in late September in Miami. Um, so that's that's all good. I mean, add into those you know announced uh, games with Colorado and Texas and A.D. Scott Strickland is uh trying to be a little more aggressive with his non-conference scheduling. But um, if you talk to some of the old guard uh, fans here, the Miami game used to be a uh, significant game. It started playing in 1938, uh, and they played uh, uh, all but one year for the next uh, 49 years, taking a break during World War II, uh, which I assume was allowed at the time. But um, for so often, it was either the first game of the year or the last game of the year. It was a big deal. And, uh, uh, you know, the Steve Spurrier play, had played against Miami. The, the Wilbur Marshall played against Miami. Uh, Emmett Smith uh, had five carries against Miami in 1987 in the last game. They probably should have given him the more because two weeks later, he rushed for 224 yards against uh, Alabama in the first road win at Tuscaloosa for the program since 1963. This was a story series in the South. And uh, the, the people involved in the program now, a lot of them weren't even alive when this was going on. But with some people, it still holds a near and dear thing. But at the same time, in this in this age, this millennial age, with social media and you know, you know, the barrage of of national TV and whatever, and the the all the hoopla and hype that's going to be on this game Saturday night, maybe you'll feel like the rivalry is back, if, if only for a little bit. But there have been some great games over the years. Um, there haven't been any recently per se, 
Last time these two teams played in 20, was 2013. And for Florida, it was a downright ugly game, a four-turnover game, games where they couldn't score in the red zone. I think six trips in the red zone, turned it over four times. Florida lost a 21-16 in that game. Um, that's a team that went four and eight, of course. But at the same time, um, you go back in history, there have been some games that a lot of people, people my age, I would say, would certainly remember uh, whether it was Jim Kelly playing in the game, Kerwin Bell playing in the game. I mentioned Wilbur Marshall. I mean, the 1984 team, uh, that Florida team that went 9-1-1 one, and, one and won the SEC only to have it stripped months later by the, because the Gators were on probation. I mean, uh, that team, uh, the only loss that that team suffered that year was to Miami, who at the time was the reigning national champion. That game was played in Tampa on just a fabulous, fabulous night of football down there that I happened to be a part of when I was living down there. But um, great games, bitter games, some of them. And if people want to go and read my uh, story where I – Pick 15 games to kind of focus on over the years, the five classics, five uh, big wins for the Gators and five significant losses for the Gators. They can see that on our website at FloridaGators.com. I think I was at one of those significant losses, the 2003 game, 38-33 Miami. Brock Berlin game. Brock Berlin. For those of your younger audience here, Brock Berlin was like as bad as a big-time quarterback recruit as you could be back in, what, 2001 and two. He was the number one rated uh, player in the USA Today Offensive Player of the Year, and Spurrier landed him. He was the, considered the number one signing class in the country. So, uh, uh, yeah, and then he ended up transferring to Miami and staging the biggest comeback in the in the series history um, against his former team. So uh, I wasn't there for that one, but apparently Scott was there. I was there one of my few games as a fan uh, in many years. I was there at the Orange Bowl because I knew I figured it would be my last time at the Orange Bowl, which it was. Uh, but I remember Florida led, like, I think by 21 or 24. It got ugly, and Miami was the one celebrating. But it was a 24-point lead. It was the second biggest blown lead in school history behind only the choke at the doke. All this is mentioned in my story. So people, <laughs> can and, people can go and educate themselves on history. It's funny. The year before that, Miami was number one and came here and hadn't played in Florida Field, I think, since 1986, I think, is the right year. And uh, it was Ron Zook's first year, and I think – Something like 41 to 16 rings a bell. I think there was like a 90 yard fumble return by Sean Taylor. That's, uh, that's, uh, so, so, I mean, it, it hasn't been roses for the Gators in this uh, rivalry the last 30 plus years, but uh, they certainly have a chance to at least make up for a little lost time um, this weekend. That's the only game I ever came to as a fan that I, just without a ticket that I couldn't get a ticket. Couldn't get a ticket. That, I remember the University Avenue was crazy. I can only imagine what. That first game, that first meeting oh, uh, in one crazy. of those two stadiums. Because if you recall, Adam, when the, the, again, the last game was 1987, then they shut the rivalry down, and it was Florida's decision to do that. Um, they didn't play again until the Sugar Bowl following the 2000 season, which was a big deal uh, in New Orleans. And lo and behold, three nights before they even played, there was a fight uh, out in the middle of the street between Gators and uh, uh, Hurricanes. I remember I was covering the Bucks at the time. And I remember reading and hearing all about this and going into the Bucks locker room the next day and going up to Nate Webster, who every bit the Carroll City guy. And I went up to him. I go, hey, hey, Nate, I go, you hear about what happened in New Orleans with UM and UF last night? He goes, no, man, what? I go, Gators and Hurricanes rolling in the pavement on Bourbon Street at 1.30 in the morning last night. He goes, man, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> 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 Damn right, he liked it. Yeah, 
man. UM won that game, uh, I believe it was 37 to 20, sounds about right. Yeah. Or 37, 20, something like that, yeah. But, uh, uh, again, that was Butch Davis' team. I think they were second rank in the country, and that was Steve Spurrier's only crack at the Hurricanes as a coach. So um, fun stuff to uh, go back in memory lane and kind of uh, go chronicle that for people who may not know about it. Mm-hmm. And in case anyone missed the, the subtle mentions there, you, Chris has a whole article on this you can go read on FloridaGators.com, which we encourage you to do. Um, but we're excited to see this rivalry come back around and certainly look forward to talking about it next week. What I want to do for our PAT is while there's a million controversial things we could debate that we have gone on throughout the summer while we weren't talking, um, I, I want to quite simply talk about what you guys did while we were gone. Uh, Chris, I know you had some uh, especially interesting travels that sort of linked up with what I did. So curious yeah. for you guys to, to fill us in on the last two months that, that, that we missed you. My family, my wife, daughter, and I went to uh, Washington State and went to Olympic National Park. About five days out there uh, hiking and climbing mountains and going through rainforests. And it's a very, very cool area, obviously, out there uh, uh, near Seattle, what have you. And uh, I kind of hiked till my, for my kind of like my last leg hike. And then I came back home and went under the knife for knee replacement surgery, which I'm recovering from now. So my summer has been eventful. And uh, people see me hobbling around a little bit at Camping World Stadium. That'll it'll be because I'm still on the mend from that. But hopefully my plan is to be back 100% by the time a basketball season rolls around, if not much sooner before that. But that would be that would be my preference with all the with all the travel ahead. But as all summers, it was it was fun to get away and, and do something uh, different and go somewhere where you wouldn't normally be. Wasn't so much fun being a being in bed, icing your knee for uh, for the last five weeks, but um, hopefully I'll be better for it down the line. I also did some some exploration in Washington State, albeit not at a national park. I was at a state park, but was still able to do a. We did an about an eight hour hike, so it was about three hours up and then two and a half hours back down with an hour in the middle. What what level of, of hiking were you guys doing out there? Certainly, some of them were "quote unquote" strenuous. We had one that was, uh, you know, three thousand mile elevation or whatever. Um, we went, we were up, and saw a guy taking a selfie with a mountain goat. Oh wow! Um, <laughs> it tells you to stay fifty feet away from mountain goats, but he was getting close enough where um, I read somewhere where the mountain goats uh, are kind of uh, crafty. They they wait to see you urinate and they charge you and butt you from behind. It's like a game for them or something yeah. like that. There's actually signs to talk about it in the national park. Oh, yeah, I would. I mean, I would. I think that would be like a Rex Chapman block blocker charge. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Probably might force you to get another knee surgery. <laughs> so, Scott, did you do any uh, any outdoor exploration, or, or were your exploits a little more uh, laid back? Well, guys, as you guys were hiking, uh, you know, I actually made my way up to the mountains too, Adam. Uh, took a little late summer vacation with the family. Uh, my dad lives up in East Tennessee, volunteer country. Although he he does root for the Gators. Uh, now we you know we did Smokies, we did saw family, went up to Virginia, up into different sides of uh, the countryside where he lives. I mean, if you've ever been up there, it's a tremendously beautiful country. Did those days, went to the beach with the family to take the other side of it in while we were in Florida. And mostly just, you know, took a little downtime because we knew what was coming because uh, the season is starting earlier than normal this year. Uh, so, unfortunately, seemed like I had this conversation last time. Unfortunately, I maybe don't have the vacation that you guys have. But 
our kids are finally old enough to start traveling. So we're really excited. We've already got something planned next year. Uh, so I'll have a better story, I think, next year. This year, it was just the mountains, family, beach, kind of typical stuff when you uh, when you live in Florida or growing up in the south. You know, you kind of check out what the region has to offer. So I, I did not make it out to the West Coast like you guys did. Well, that's okay because traveling out there is really challenging. So if you can avoid it, uh, I don't know who invented the idea of a red eye back from the West Coast. But uh, after doing one of those a few weeks ago, I don't really have a great interest in going out there again anytime soon. Well, I love Seattle. I used to go out there a lot for baseball, covering the you know the Rays, Mariners, and it's a great city. But I've never done the hiking out there. After I see what it did to Chris, I'm not sure I'm going to. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, we know you're going to be very busy in Orlando coming up this weekend. I encourage everybody to stay locked on FloridaGators.com. There's a lot of content coming out from both Chris and Scott. And they will absolutely be there covering the game as well, including everything that happens after the dust settles. And we'll discuss that next week. Guys, uh, glad to have you back. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Adam. Whether it's from father to son or brother to brother, there are countless family legacies when it comes to Florida football, including the Taylors, McGriffs, Caldwells, and many more. But we're currently in the era of the Wilsons, a run started by Quincy in 2014 and now continuing with his younger brother. Marco Wilson was poised to have a big season last year in his first as a starter, but an early injury derailed his campaign and forced him to watch from the sidelines. Now healthy and ready to make up for lost time, we spoke to Marco about that mission and his direct familial ties to Miami, but began by going back to the beginning. My mom and dad, uh, Chad and Carmen Wilson, um, raised me in uh, Miramar, Florida. Um, and it was just a, a pretty good uh, experience. I'm glad I, I was raised there. I got to be around some cool people and um, always around sports. So uh, sports was uh, always involved for me early on. Um, played football, started when I was like five years old, and I've been doing it ever since. And uh, it was just a really great environment growing up, always around my family. Um and they just uh, taught me some uh, very valuable lessons uh, throughout my life. So most people probably know that Quincy Wilson is your brother. But outside of him, any other brothers or sisters growing up? Uh, I have a sister. And she went to New Haven for college for uh, volleyball and acting. Hmm. Um, so it was just uh, my brother and my sister. How early do your parents get you started on sports? Was that sort of the, the same for all of you? Uh, yeah, it was the same for all of us, really. And it was multiple sports. I played uh, baseball as well, football, and then I did track um, also. You know, I always like finding out with multi-sport athletes what ultimately leads you to focus on one. So for you, when did you realize football was really the, the sport that you loved and, and wanted to pursue? Really when I was young, like after trying out all the sports, I really just loved football the most. And I had the most fun playing that. I'd make a lot of friends. And then I just continued to play it through middle school and then high school. And then I started getting offers and I realized I can, I can go to school on a scholarship and then realize it could uh, lead me to the, uh, going to play professional. And I always watched the uh, NFL games and stuff like that. And I wanted to end up like those guys because that was the sport I was playing. So I thought that was pretty cool. How competitive were you and Quincy growing up? What was that competition like for you guys? I wouldn't say we really uh, compete with uh, sports, but we'd always uh, compete like in the house doing uh, all sorts of things. But now uh, 
it's a little bit more competitive because now we're kind of like uh, I'm going into like at the same level as he was before. It was just he was kind of like older than me, and I was just a young kid, so I didn't really compete with him like that. When you started getting recruited, what schools were you most interested in, and why did Florida stand out? When I first started getting recruited, um, early on, I didn't get offers from teams that I liked, like Florida. They weren't one of my first offers. Um, I really liked Florida and um, teams like Ohio State, USC, Oregon, because I used to watch their games and I had favorite players on those teams. Um, And then just going to my brother's games all the time up here in Florida, I got really comfortable with the school, and I realized they just – they just did a lot of great things for my brother. So I just wanted to follow in those footsteps. You know, there's a lot of athletes that come through that had a, a parent or a sibling that was also part of the program. How do you view that in terms of that shadow? Is that something you embrace? Do you try and break free of it? Like when someone refers to you as Quincy Wilson's brother, how do you take that? Is that a positive thing or do you try and beat that? They, when people say that, they say it as a positive thing, so I don't mind it. Um, he had a good reputation, and um, when they say that, I can be proud of that because uh, it's not someone I should be embarrassed of. My brother did great things, so uh, they're just comparing me to someone who did a good deal here at Florida. So um, I, I don't have any problem with it, but I mainly just focus on, on what I'm trying to do. Um, what he did was great, but I, I like to focus on what I'm trying to do and my goals and aspirations. When you came into the program, obviously it was right when he was leaving. So who were the, the biggest influences on you when you got there in terms of helping you grow and learn the ropes? I think Duke Dawson helped me a lot when I first got here because he played corner as well. And as a young guy, I'm just trying to uh, figure out how to uh, handle everything, coming to college and, and learning how to play it um, at this type of level. I think uh, Duke really helped me out when I got here to do that. Well, I know you had a, a really good freshman year and then had high expectations last season. And then, as unfortunately happens sometimes, in the blink of an eye, injury happens and you're done for the year right after. I believe it was it was the first play of the Kentucky game, right? Yes, on the second play. Second play, yes. So I'm curious, what was that like for you processing that to happen so early in the season and have so many things you're looking forward to? How did you... How did you react to that? It was upsetting. I was uh, very mad about it, but um, I just had to uh, put all my focus into getting back onto the field for this year and all those goals and aspirations. I could just put them onto this year because I know I can be back out there this year. I know you suffered an ACL tear in high school as well. So how were the recovery processes different from that time to this time? Uh, I feel like I, I was more upset about it this time. I was just really excited about playing college football and I didn't feel like I really got to experience everything my freshman year, especially winning was a big thing. Mm-hmm. So just watching those guys play this year, it was, uh, it was tough for me. But um, in the recovery process, it was uh, easier this, this time because I had better um, treatment mm-hmm. and better trainers to help me with that. So it went by quicker and I was doing a lot of things, a lot of things faster than I was last time. What is that recovery process like in terms of the steps you have to take? Like, how long are you not able to do any running? How long are you not able to even walk? I mean, what, what does that look like? Well, I was on crutches uh, for about two weeks, hmm. so that was rough. Um, really just walking again feels weird. Everything feels weird at first when you start doing it again. So mm-hmm. it's kind of uh, challenging to know that you used to be able to do something so a certain type of way, but now um, you have to learn how to do it again. How long did it take you to be able to run? How long until you could cut in terms of getting back to the things that you're used to doing? I started running um, about three months after surgery, hmm. but that it was just like strides. It wasn't like a full speed run. It still felt a little 
a little weird for me. Mm-hmm. But then um, around winter workouts and stuff like that, I was able to sprint and start um, doing some cutting, not, not everything yet. So that was around four or five months, but around five and a half, six months mark, I was able to do everything just fine. So even though you weren't able to be on the field last year, I know a lot of times guys say when they're off the field, they maybe learn more about the game. How do you feel like you grew mentally without being able to be on the field last year, but obviously going through the whole season with the team? I think mentally it just uh, made me stronger as a uh, as a person, as a player. And also, also you can, I got smarter because I got to see things that I wouldn't normally see when I'm just focused on the game and, and I focus on my assignment and stuff like that. So I get to uh, break down how how offenses like to work and stuff like that. So it was really uh, it was really good for me. We talked a little bit about Quincy earlier. I'm curious, how much do you use him as sort of a, a sounding board and getting feedback from him as you move through your career at, at Florida? Um, I talk to him all the time about stuff, and it's really it's really helpful because he's ahead of me in um, his process of life, so he can give me some tips that he may not have uh, had um, at my age. So I uh, learned how to live my life with making better decisions and understanding why certain things might happen and how they might happen. What does he tell you about playing at the next level in terms of maybe some things you have to adjust to or, or things you can prepare for since he's doing that right now? He really just says it's more of a business um, at that level, so... Uh, his main his main focus is telling me to enjoy my time while I'm in college because when I get to that level, it's, it's like a, a real business and those guys are are serious about everything. It's not like you just can hang out with your friends like you're in college anymore. Mm-hmm. Guys uh, have kids to take care of, so it's not it's not the same feeling as college, but it's definitely fun. But at the same time, you have to always be on point because they can replace you real quick because everyone um, on that level is a professional. Mm-hmm. In terms of DBs at the next level, and this doesn't even have to be guys who are playing right now, maybe guys you watch growing up, which players do you model your game after? Who do you watch and say, I want to I want to take that quality from that player and so on and so forth? I really like my, my favorite guy was um, Darrell Rivas. Um, mm-hmm. I liked how he played. He's real physical in his technique. Um, and receivers always had a problem getting open on him. So that's really the guy I like to watch, and I like to model my game after. I know a lot of a lot of DBs have their matchups they like to think about in terms of playing those mind games. When you think about receivers that you'd like to take on one-on-one, are there any guys you think about, especially that, that you've watched over the years? Um, right now in college, I'd... Uh... Definitely um, Alabama's receiving core. They got a really a good group of uh, guys there. So I think uh, going against them would be a pretty interesting matchup. Any pros, guys you've watched over the years that you think would be fun to match um, up with? Definitely all the all the uh, great guys in the pros right now. Julio, AB, Odell, those guys. So you mentioned earlier some of the other sports you played growing up. I know you were a, something of a track star in high school. What what, what events did you run in track? Um, I did a lot of relays, 4x1, 4x2. Um, I did the 400. And I also did the triple jump and the long jump. Wow. And I did the 200. Did you ever think about doing that in college as well, or was it always just going to be football for you? Um, I really just did that uh, in, in high school uh, to keep my speed up and keep going. But I knew I wouldn't be able to uh, run it in, uh, at a college level because those those guys train all year for that. And mm-hmm. I, I put more of my focus in the football. But track definitely helped me out on the football field to uh, keep my speed up. Um, endurance, all that, and, and building strong legs to run for uh, at top speed. You know, being a, a, a track guy, I know pure speed is something that you really focus on. Which members of the team you're on now do you think could maybe stay with you in a race, or do you think you're the fastest guy? 
No, definitely. Uh, probably guys like C.J. Henderson, Tyree Cleveland. Those guys are pretty fast. Moving away from football for a sec here, I'm curious, what do you like to do when you get away from the game? Are there any things you really enjoy when you have some free time? Uh, definitely, I like playing video games. That's that's the main thing for me, away from football. Call of Duty, um, FIFA, play mm-hmm. that a lot. Are you the best among your teammates at that? Uh, I definitely think I'm, I'm the best in FIFA <laughs> on my team. That's big. That's good. I know a lot of, a lot of guys play that. Um, as you came back from the summer and got really focused on football again, what, what were some of the things you did when you had some free time this summer? Anything interesting? You take any trips? Go anywhere unique? I went on a cruise with my family in June. That was that was pretty cool. Uh, we went to Mexico, Jamaica, and um, the Cayman Islands. I think that's a lot of fun. Did you do? A, did you Stingray City in Grand Cayman Island? No, I did see that, but I I, I stayed away from that. I don't I, I didn't want to I didn't want to get into that. You know why your stingray is crawling on you? No, that's that's fair enough. <laughs> Bringing things back here, looking at the secondary as a whole, I know the last few years it's been kind of a recurring story with a lot of young guys there. Can you tell us about some of the guys that are around you and what fans can expect to see from them this season? Uh, I I think that as a as a whole is this um, DB core. We're going to be really good this year. Um, over the past years, we, we've all been kind of young, and now that we're getting older, we've become smarter and we become better players. So I think they're going to see a lot of growth in us. Um, also, the young guys that have came in, um, Kyer Elam, Chester, and um, Jaden Hill, those guys are, are following in our footsteps and uh, trying to find, find the right path. And I think those guys, when they get their opportunity, they're going to go in and they're going to make plays, no problem. You know, last year was a big year for the offense kind of bouncing back. And I know you get to see those guys all the time in practice. Which offensive players should fans be looking for to have big years? What's a name that maybe people aren't talking about that you know from experience is going to make an impact? I think I think all of them are, are going to be great, especially the wide receivers. The wide receivers always give us a great challenge in practice. So I think every wide receiver out there is going to um, make themselves a name this season. Growing up in South Florida and having a dad who played for Miami, we haven't talked about that yet. Uh, were you a Miami fan growing up, or was that not really a factor? I wasn't really a Miami fan, but I looked at I liked uh, some of the players they used to have on the team, Ed Reed, Sean Taylor. Uh, I like to see those guys play, but as a whole, I wasn't really a Miami fan. I used to uh, like to watch Florida and Oregon. Having that background though with your dad, is that something that you guys have talked about? I mean, is he is he a big rah rah guy for the U, or has he pretty much been all Florida since you and Quincy came? Yeah, he's not he's not all crazy about the U or anything like that. He likes to support his children. So <laughs> so far, it's all, it's been all Florida. So um, that's pretty cool. He's not really uh like having any pride about the Miami stuff. He's just real, really uh, focused on supporting his kids and, and making sure that they they have a positive life. So I think that's I think that's really good. Do you know many of those guys down there? Is that something that's been going on this week, kind of talking about it? No, I don't do much, I don't do much talking about the game. I'm just focused on giving my best performance on Saturday and making sure I'm prepared and make sure this team's prepared. Uh, I don't put much time into talking about anything with any of those guys over there. I do know a couple of them, but I'm sure I'll talk to them after the game. It was similar to a couple of years ago when you guys opened with Michigan. This is kind of a, a different feel opening with such a big game that there's so many eyeballs on as well. So what was camp like and, and what was the off season like in terms of having that huge opener to prepare for instead of knowing you maybe have a week or so to, to sort of get your legs under you? Um, I think we, we prepare uh, hard and prepare re- uh, like ready for anything um, for the first game, no matter who we're playing. Um, this, uh, Coach Savage, especially with the off season program, he doesn't care uh, what type of team we're playing in the first game. 
Uh, it's not about really about the team we're playing. It's about the the look that we we show people. We need to go show uh, people that this is a team that can uh, go play in a national championship game, no matter uh, who the opponent is. And we care about uh, how we look as a team, not about who we're going to be playing against. So the pre- uh, preparation has been really tough, and we've been going hard all summer. And fall camp was tough, but um, it's definitely going to show off during the season. Final thing for you, Marco, as you prepare for the game this weekend, I'm curious. What are the biggest challenges you see, especially from what you've looked at on tape from Miami? I would say uh, not being able to uh, see film on them from last year with the offense they'll be running this year. That's that's the only thing that's a little bit uh, frustrating uh, for this uh, getting prepared for this game. Regardless of that, what are the expectations you have for yourself and obviously the young guys around you? What are you going to be really focused on? Uh, I'm just I'm just focused on winning. I want to I want to win. Um, last time I really played a, a real season here at Florida, um, I, I didn't experience a lot of winning, and that's not something that, that uh, sat well with me. So I, I just want to go out there, I want to win, and I want to do anything to help my team win. Well, Marco, we're glad you're healthy and we wish you a lot of luck this season. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Florida and Miami open up the 150th season of college football Saturday night at 7, with coverage on ESPN and the Gator IMG Sports Network. Then come back next Thursday as we'll have an all-new episode to break it down. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Orlando. Orlando.